Boy, do we have a great program lined up for you today. I'll interview Stephanie Gray on how to think carefully about infertility and IVF. I'll also have a conversation with former abortionist Dr. Anthony Levitino. As we uh, end the year of 2022, I want to take a moment and thank you for listening and watching to Activist Radio, The Mark Harrington Show, and I look forward to bringing you more great content in 2023. Merry Christmas and have a happy new year. Activist Radio, The Mark Carrington Show is brought to you by Created Equal, and you can support our work and the ministry by going to markharringtonshow.com. You can just click on the donate link, and I'll ask you to also share the program, comment on the program, and like the program, and we are on all the popular podcasting platforms. So today, my guest is Stephanie Gray. And Stephanie is an international speaker, debater, and author. She's also a good friend of mine. I met her in 1999, going way back, when I was with the Center for Bioethical Reform, and we visited the University of British Columbia with our Genocide Awareness Project. And Stephanie was a student there leading a Students for Life organization. And as they say, the rest is history, because we spent... Uh, several years traveling together on college campuses in North America with the Genocide Awareness Project. And so I've known Stephanie for over 20 years now, and she's become a mother. So thanks for joining us, Stephanie. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, shout out to Students for Life of America. Those who are viewing this can see I'm wearing my Strong as a Pro-Life Mother t-shirt. So Amen. yes, my little one's having a nap right now. <laughs> Well, I've always known you as Miss Gray. Now I have to refer to you as Mrs. Gray Connors, Stephanie Gray Connors. So um, I'm so I'm so thankful that you've become a mother and I'm uh, your little daughter is very beautiful. Violet Grace. Let's tell us the story of Violet Grace, because I think that fits well with the conversation we're going to have today. It does. Yes. I mean, we'll be talking about my latest book on infertility and IVF conceived by science. And um, my own story is that I got married later in life at 40, and my husband and I weren't sure if we'd conceive as much as we wanted to, um, and we were blessed to conceive right away, and then very sadly, we miscarried our first child. So when we got pregnant again, uh, a friend recommended, several friends actually, recommended I get my progesterone levels checked because if your levels are too low, you could miscarry. So when I had my levels checked, we saw that my progesterone was dropping, which meant we could have miscarried our second baby. And so I immediately contacted a dear friend of mine who's responsible for setting up my husband and I, as she's a pro-life speaker, many know, Lila Grace Rose. And uh, I, I contacted Lila and I'm like, Lila, do you know any doctor in restorative reproductive medicine who can help connect me with um, progesterone and to supplement, you know, my levels? And so immediately, like within the hour, she connected me to an amazing pro-life physician, Dr. George Delgado. And so I credit Dr. Delgado and Lila and then a, a physician, Dr. Lamute in Florida, for saving my baby's life because then I was immediately put on a progesterone prescription, which I needed until the 23rd week of pregnancy in order to keep Violet alive. So when we named her, we named her Violet Grace in order to provide some honor to Lila by sharing the same middle name. 
It's such a cool story, Stephanie. We're so happy for you and um, your lovely daughter. So let's jump in here. Uh, I want to cover a, a, a couple of topics. The first, of course, is abortion. You've written your book, Love Unleashes Life. That's actually the name of your ministry as well. But I want to talk a little bit about abortion, give uh, some of our listeners and viewers a little bit of a primer on some of the hard cases, because we don't have a lot of time to go into real depth here. And then I want to talk about your new book, which is Conceived by Science. I picked it up. I've read it. I took notes and I have questions for you. So we're going to we're going to spend a lot of time on this one as well. But let's start out with your book, uh, Love Unleashes Life. And um, let's see here, the abortion and the art of communicating truth. That's the subtitle. So let's just start in with some of the tougher uh, questions or uh, comments that people have. The one that comes up most often by pro-abortion advocates is this. What about in the case of rape? Wouldn't you justify abortion if you uh, if someone was raped? I've often had people come up and say, if you have a daughter, which I do, and she's 23 now, but if your daughter was raped and she got pregnant, would you uh, decide to have an abortion or have her have an abortion? Of course, I say no. I mean, I don't know what they expect me to tell them. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pro-life activist. I'm not going to murder my <laughs> my, my my daughter or my granddaughter, you know. <laughs> but anyway, they do ask that a lot, and that is one that people have trouble answering. How do you answer that? Sure. I think the first place I typically begin is to acknowledge that that is an injustice. The violent act of rape is an evil. It's terrible. And we need to offer support and compassion to victims of sexual assault. I then propose a question, which is this. Is it fair to give the death penalty to the innocent child? So indeed, the rape is an injustice, but abortion is as well. The rape victim, the woman, is innocent, and the preborn child is innocent as well. The guilty party is the rapist, and giving an abortion to the innocent child is giving a consequence to an innocent party that uh, we don't even give to the guilty party in terms of termination of the, the rapist's life. Um, then I think it's powerful to tell stories. And I often will tell the story of Leanna Rebolito. You can look her story up online for more depth. But she was uh, essentially kidnapped and raped at the age of 12 and got pregnant and kept her baby and then raised her daughter. And uh, her daughter became her best friend and is so grateful that, that she chose life for her child, even amidst brutal circumstances that her child was conceived under. So let's also ask the question, what about the abortion in the case of the life of the mother when they're threatened, typically through an atopic pregnancy? How would you answer that? Sure. Again, acknowledging that is a difficult situation that we want to have compassion for all parties involved. And then I would make the point that the act of abortion, because it involves direct and intentional killing, that is always wrong. Saying that we may not pursue abortion, it doesn't follow there is nothing to be done if a woman's life is in danger. We may intervene, but we have to choose an ethical path rather than an unethical one. So if you have, for example, a tubal ectopic pregnancy where the baby is stuck in the fallopian tube rather than transported naturally into the uh, uterus, um, in that case, as the baby grows in the tube, the tube will expand and the expanding tube will eventually burst. That can kill the mom and 
can certainly kill the baby. So in that case, instead of directly targeting the baby's body for destruction and death, what is an ethical response is a procedure called a salpingectomy, which is a surgery in which the section of fallopian tube is removed. And that's where philosophers and theologians would say this is employing the principle of double effect, where you're not doing right. evil by removing the tube. You're committing a good action, removing a tube which is threatening the mom and the baby. And that good action has a good and a bad effect, a double effect. So the good effect is the mom doesn't die because the expanding tube is no longer in her body. The bad effect is the baby dies because we lack the technology to transplant the baby somewhere else. But the baby doesn't die because we directly targeted the baby's body for destruction, but rather because we have yet to advance enough technologically to have an alternative environment to sustain the child's life in. And not being able to save a child is very different from directly killing a child. And abortion is the latter. It's directly killing. So that's always wrong. And I think this is really important for our listeners and viewers to understand. We often hear pro-life advocates saying that abortion is justified in the case of the, uh, threatening the life of the mother. They'll just say it's okay. In fact, legislation is written even to permit that uh, procedure to take place. This is different. Real quickly, again, go back over it because I don't think a lot of people understand this. The procedure, what is it called and why is it different than abortion? Yes, it's really important to emphasize this. You're right. So the in the case of a tubal ectopic pregnancy, an ethical response is a salpingectomy, which is a removal of the section of fallopian tube that mm. is expanding and threatening the two people's lives, the preborn And that's life, different from well abortion. Why? So abortion directly targets the baby's body. The Targeting of the fallopian tube is the mother's body. So there's a difference right there. Abortion not only targets the baby's body, but the very intention of all parties involved is to destroy and kill. Right. There's no abortionist right. who's like, let me do an abortion to remove the child, but keep the baby alive. I mean, sometimes the baby survives a, a late abortion, but that's never the intention of the abortionist. Whereas when a woman's life is in danger and we intervene, our intention is to save both lives. We may not succeed in fulfilling our intention because we lack technology, but we're still aiming to try to preserve and respect two lives. And that's just wholly different from abortion, which has no respect whatsoever for the preborn life because it doesn't even consider it a life. And that's the right. fundamental difference. Right. My guest is Stephanie Gray. She's an author, international speaker and debater. She's debated uh, pro-abortion advocates for decades, including late-term abortionists. She's written a book called Love Unleashes Life, and we're talking about that today. If you want to learn more about how to properly debate abortion and have some good communication skills, that's the, the, the book to get. Love Unleashes Life, and you can go to loveunleasheslife.com, right? Loveunleasheslife.com for that mm -hmm. book. Okay. That's right. So let's switch gears here. You have a new book. Yeah. This is your third in, uh, book. You wrote one. Uh, this will be the third. So the second is was called Start With What? Ten Principles of Thinking About Assisted Suicide. This one's about in vitro fertilization and infertility. Uh, I found the book fascinating. I, I know a lot of people that have struggled with this. Uh, infertility, for sure, and also in vitro fertilization. Let me just ask you this. Why did you write the book? Why did you feel it was necessary? Yeah. Sure. I started being asked 
by audiences what I thought about IVF. And it occurred to me as I was giving my answer that there was a lot of misinformation and a lack of education on this particular topic. And because the nature of IVF on the surface is oriented towards creating life, people kind of intuitively think, oh, well, that must be right, even if abortion is wrong. But if we dig a little deeper, what people don't realize is that often children are killed in order to create other children. So we're talking about an action which actually threatens, harms, and even destroys some preborn lives. And so I thought there was a need to speak up for preborn children who were victimized this way, but to do so in a sensitive manner, realizing that someone's desire for children is very ordered and good. And so struggling to conceive is a very heavy cross that we Mm -hmm. need to... um, talk about in a sensitive way. So I wanted to bring a book into the scene that reaches the mind as well as the heart and um, is compassionate, but intellectual at the same time. I think most of us know someone who has struggled with infertility, and it's a very difficult situation. Of course, uh, many parents go through a lot of pain if they're unable to conceive. Uh, So we want to be sensitive to that. I think you do a great job in doing that. But I think the point that you make is very strong, and that is that pain, the pain of infertility, the inability to conceive and have a child, should not justify any action to relieve the pain. In other words, there's no, I mean, like, there has to be limits to how we go about relieving that pain. I think you deal with that really well here. Uh, You talk about the idea that should we have the right to demand a child. If you would tell us a little more about that, go in depth a little more on that. Sure. Yeah. One of the points I wanted to get across is that as much as the desire for children is good, I make an analogy in my book with the desire for a spouse, which is also very good. And as most people will have children, most people will get married. Uh, But some people struggle to find a spouse. And I cite the case in China where decades of a one-child policy and a culture that pursues uh, prefers male children uh, has resulted in 34 million more men than women in China. And so there are lots of documentaries you can find of men who long to have a spouse and cannot find a wife. And I use that to make the point that as much as we can have compassion on these men who desire a life partner, their desire for a good, such as a spouse, does not give them license to do just anything to achieve that end. And the example I give is sadly some men in China are pursuing human trafficking and women are literally being kidnapped and stolen and forced into forced marriages against their will because some people want wives. And our whole point would be, whoa, a wife is a human And humans are gifts. We don't have a right to another human. That's a, if we have a right to something, it's because it's an object, but we don't have a right to a subject. A subject is a gift and the gift giver of a subject is God, not another human being. Because if I can give you a human being, then that means I in some way possess or own that human being. That's why slavery is wrong because the slave owner is claiming to possess or own his slave, which means he's superior and the slave is inferior. But we reject that notion and we say, hold on, humans are equal. There isn't a relationship of superiority and an inferiority. There's one of equality. And so just as it's not ethical for someone who desires a spouse to kidnap a woman, it would also not be ethical for someone who desires a child to kidnap a child. We all agree with that. 
But in the same way, I then use that as a springboard analogy to the topic of IVF in order to make the point the desire for a child doesn't justify the means of IVF if IVF itself is unethical. And then the whole book is unpacking the point that we do not have a right to a child. Children are a gift given from God to be received through sexual intimacy. I mean, the way God designed things was so that sex was necessary to be fruitful and multiply. With in vitro fertilization, sex is entirely unnecessary. No longer do you have a husband and wife receiving new life as a fruit of their sexual act. They essentially contract out the receipt of new life to the hands of a stranger who's not part of their covenantal relationship. And it's at the stranger's hand that new life, far from being received, is actually manufactured and forced into existence like an object. The key, though, is that life isn't an object. That life is a subject and is our equal. My guest has been Stephanie Gray Connors, and you can check out more about her work by going to loveunleasheslife.com. Thanks for being on the show, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. So today I have as my guest, Dr. Anthony Levitino, and he's an obstetrician gynecologist and formerly served as a professor. And he was the director of the student and residency program at Albany Medical Center. And Dr. Levitino is a former abortionist and now is pro-life. He performed over 1,000 abortions and now travels the country and speaks to pro-life audiences about his experience as an abortionist. Dr. Levitino, thanks for being on the program today. Happy to see you again, Mark. So let's jump right in here. We have a very short time with you, but I want to uh, just just get into your testimony. First of all, uh, the, the question I have and something I've always wondered about abortionists in, in your past life, if you will, before you stop doing that, uh, is why did you start doing abortions in the first place? Um, you know, a lot of people identify themselves as pro-life or pro-choice, but it, it doesn't necessarily affect their lives directly. Mm-hmm. But when you're an obstetrician gynecologist and you say you're pro-choice, like I was, then it's not just some vague political position. You have to decide whether you're going to actually do abortions or not. Right. So along in my training program as an obstetrician gynecologist, along with learning to do deliveries, hysterectomies, and all the other things we do, I learned to do abortions, and that's how I got involved. So as you were in your residency, you're being trained uh, to be an OBGYN, you were doing abortions. Uh, at that time, did you ever, did it ever occur to you that what you were doing was, you know, a problem? Or did, when, when did you start having any doubts about what you were doing? Because eventually you stopped performing abortions. I kind of like to know what what was the process that which you went through to eventually stop doing them all together? When was the first time you had a doubt about what you were doing? My wife and I had met and married when I was in my first year of training, and uh, we found out pretty obvious, uh, pretty early on we were on opposite sides of the issue, which had its own difficulties. Hmm. Uh, but we married and wanted to start a family of our own and found out pretty quickly that we had an infertility problem. We just weren't getting pregnant. Um, so after an extensive workup, it was determined that it was very unlikely that we would be able to have children of our own. And we tried to adopt a child and anyone who's adopt, tried to adopt a, a baby knows how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to religious agencies, state agencies, county agencies, everywhere we could. 
And the best we could do after months of effort was to get on a five-year waiting list to get on the actual waiting list. Mm-hmm. Um, it was then that I had my first doubts about abortion. They were strictly selfish. I was you know, thinking, here I am trying to adopt a child, yet I'm doing abortions on a regular basis and thinking literally, I- I'm throwing these kids in the garbage. Wouldn't even one of these women allow us to take her baby home and care for her as our own? So this was after medical school where you were actually practicing as an OBGYN. You were in a practice. You were actually out of school, right? I was still in my residency program at that point. Oh, okay. I was still in my residency program at that point. And um, we were very fortunate, uh, ultimately, in that we were able to adopt a little girl that we named Heather uh, in uh, August of 1978. And as occasionally happens, after all the effort of trying to have a baby of our own, we adopted a child. My wife did become pregnant the very next month, and we had two children 10 months apart. So take us through this. What eventually changed your mind from becoming an abortion doctor who had performed 1,200 or so abortions to someone who stopped doing that and now is a strong pro-life advocate? What was it that changed your mind on performing abortions? Would it be appropriate for me to describe a second trimester abortion? Certainly, of course. Because, and I do this at presentations, and it's not just to be spectacular. If you don't understand what it's like to do one, mm-hmm. then it doesn't make a lot of sense why you quit. Um, imagine a, you know, a baby 20 weeks pregnant, you know, a woman comes in 20 weeks pregnant, her baby from head to rump is the length of your hand from middle finger to wrist, about seven inches long. And to do a second trimester abortion at that stage, you have to literally tear that baby limb from limb, literally. Yes. Um, this is a sofa clamp. It's, a, it's the instrument that I used for years. It's 13 inches long. It's stainless steel. The business end is two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of teeth on this instrument. And when it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. Uh, the way I used to do DNA abortions, it was a blind procedure. And I, and I tell people, I mean, picture yourself taking a clamp like this, putting up in the uterus, be careful not to perforate it. It's very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, grasp blindly and then pull hard. And I mean hard and out pops a leg about this big, which you put down on the table next to you. And then go in with this clamp again and grab and pull hard. And out comes an arm the same length, which you put down on the table next to you. And then use this clamp again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head on a baby that size is about the size of a plum. They can't see it, again, unless you're using an ultrasound, and I didn't. Uh, But you're pretty sure you got it if your instrument's around something, your fingers are spread as far as they will go. You know you did it right if you crush down in the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you can pull out skull pieces, and sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. That's what doing a second trimester DNA abortion is like. And even the earlier abortions, um, you, you, you know, when you're done with any abortion, any surgical abortion, you have to keep inventory. You have to make sure that you get two arms, two legs, and all the pieces. Because if you don't, your patient will come back infected, bleeding, or dead. So in that backdrop and knowing, and and I know it's hard to even for most people to comprehend even doing that once. I did it over 1,200 times in my career. Um, In August of, excuse me, on June 23rd, 1984, 
my daughter, my adopted daughter, Heather, was exactly exactly two months away from her sixth birthday. Our son, Sean, was just a few days away from his fifth birthday. It was a Saturday, a beautiful day in Albany, New York, where we lived. Um, I was on call, but it wasn't too busy. I made rounds and we got to spend the rest of the day together. Took the kids to an amusement park, had dinner together. And then that evening we were talking with friends who had come over for cake and coffee when we heard the screech of brakes out in front of our house. Mm. The kids had gone out in the road and Heather had been hit by a car. She was a mess. Um, mm. You know, I'm a doctor. I'm supposed to be able to save people's lives. Right. My wife was an intensive care nurse, but it made absolutely no difference. And she literally died in our arms in the back of an ambulance that night. Now, if someone listening has kids, you may have some idea of what it's, you know, what it's like to lose a child. Unless you've done this yourself, you have no idea. I hope you never find out. Mm -hmm. What do you do after a disaster? You know, you bury your child, you take some time off, and then you try to get back into your life. And I don't know how long it was after her death, but I showed up at OR number nine at Albany Medical Center, just like I had over a hundred times before for a second trimester d &E abortion. I wasn't thinking of this as anything special. This was routine and I had other things on my mind. And I reached in with that sofa clamp and I tore out an arm or a leg and I got sick. Mm -hmm. um, but as I said, once you start an abortion, you can't stop. You have to finish the procedure and I did. And in the process of looking at those body parts, like I had over a hundred times before in second, you know, late trimester, you know, later second trimester abortions, you know, I didn't see her wonderful right to choose. And I, I didn't see what a great doctor I was. And I didn't see the over $2,000 I just made in 15 minutes. Uh, all I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And it occurred to me in that moment that this person had come to me figuratively, never literally, but had come to me and said, at the time it was $800 in, in the mid eighties. Now that's the equivalent of over $2,000 today. And somebody had said, here's $800, kill my son or daughter. And I was the kind of person that would look her right in the eye and with no compunction at all say, sure, I'll do that. And that's what set up what eventually became my exit from the abortion, you know, the abortion industry. My guest has been Dr. Anthony Levitino. He's an OBGYN and a former abortionist that performed over 1,200 abortions and now speaks out against the procedure that he was once part of um, performing. And so we appreciate Dr. Levitino. Thanks for being on the program today. My pleasure, Mark. God bless you. You've been listening to Mark Harrington, your radio activist. For more information on how to make a difference for the cause of life, liberty, and justice, go to createdequal.org. To follow Mark, go to markharringtonshow.com. Be sure to tune in next time for your marching orders in the culture war.